You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello again, this is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center, joining you for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored, and I am joined again with my lovely co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And we also have a special guest today, Dr. John Case from Urology of San Antonio. Hey, John. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. We're so excited to have you with us today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. We always want, you know, everybody kind of thinks about fertility and their thought automatically goes to women. And, you know, there's another 50% of the equation going on there, isn't there? Yeah, it definitely is. It looks like probably about 50% of the time there's something going on with the male when we're being evaluated. So it's probably a, probably not a bad idea to, to have them checked. And it's also inexpensive and easy to do their part of the evaluation. Absolutely. What do you, what proportion of people coming into your office for fertility reasons? Like I know when I'm looking at couples coming into my office, oftentimes it has the appearance of female partner dragging in male partner. And I I would say that's a solid 30% of the time, maybe more. What percentage of the time do you see that in your office where it's male going of own volition versus being uh, prodded with varying degrees of strength by female partner to go in and see you? Well, I think 100% of the time they've been prodded. <laughs> okay, um, you said that, so we can agree with that. Yeah. No, no, you're you're exactly right, and 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 in fact, you know, in this COVID age, it's hard to um, you you always want the female partner there because usually the male has no idea what's going on. It's very limited their insight, and so you you need the 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 partner there. And so often we'll have them on speakerphone if we can't have them in the room with us. You know, I have to say the funny thing I see too, and it never fails. You know, I'm sitting there doing my consult with the couple, and at the end right before we do the exam on the female, I'll say, well, um, you know, if you're, if you're able to today, if you've met these criteria, we can do a semen analysis on you. And he just has this blank stare. And the first, I mean, literally three seconds later, the wife's like, oh yeah, he'll be glad to do it. And he's just like, <laughs> it's like deer in headlights, you know, <laughs> usually the wife wins out though. I always say that fertility is a team sport. Yes, that's right. Very much. Yes. So. Very much so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on the sporting front, so I understand you've had, you've had a unique kind of cool experience going and seeing something really big in the baseball world before. Uh, we did. We're, we're big Cubs fans. My wife's from Chicago. So we, uh, when the world, uh, when the Cubs were in the world series, we went to, uh, the third game of the world series, uh, where the Cubs, just it was exciting. Wrigleyville was shut down. Everybody was walking the streets. Everyone was excited, and it took about an inning or two, and then the Cubs were getting demolished. And your thought was, <laughs> your thought was, this is it. It's it's over. And uh, at the end of it, we walked out and we thought, you know what? They still they still got a chance. And it turned out they turned around and won the the whole World Series. So it was oh, wow. super exciting. It was a good one to see because it was the lowest point, and then you could go nothing but up from there. That was very exciting. That's cool. I, I think, you know, I'd like to go, I'm like, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I, I just think it would be neat to be able to go to 
a World Series or a Super Bowl or or something like that. One of those like end games, you know, it's just, there's so much power. Yeah. I had a good friend in, um, in college who ended up going to medical school at the same time as I did. And, um, her dad worked for the Dallas Cowboys organization. And when we were in college was when the Cowboys were actually in like a number of Super Bowls. Sure. And I remember she was getting ready to go to one and I was at her apartment and she was packing and she was like throwing stuff in the suitcase, just angry, angry. And I was like, this does not make any sense. I'm like, you get to go to the Super Bowl. You don't only get to go to the Super Bowl, but you get to go to the Super Bowl and like go to where the fancy people are. I don't understand this. She's like, you don't understand. When I go, I go to the business side. <laughs> and I'm like, I it had never like clicked to me that, you know, it, it just like everything else, there's there's two perspectives. And, you know, the these huge games for these sporting organizations are, you know, it they're make it or break it for entire careers and you know, where people live and, and who's going to be where next year. And there, there, there's so much power in that. And it's, it's a, it's a crazy perspective. I just want to go and like be a fan. (laughs) Well, I'll have to admit, I've been to two major league baseball games in my life. One was Arizona. And the second one was in Chicago on a girl's trip the same year that they went to the to the World Series. And the, the sort of funny thing about it, my husband thought it was fabulous that I was going to this game. I was on a girl's trip. One of the girls said, I've never been to a Major League Baseball game. Let's go. So I was like, okay, I'm coming to Chicago to shop on the Magnificent Mile. But okay, we can spend the Sunday going to the baseball game. Well, it turned out it was like a six-hour game. And I think it made some record for being the longest game ever. And so I'm like going, okay, well, all the stores are closed now. So we lost a whole day of shopping in Chicago. But my husband and my son thought it was fabulous that I spent all day, you know, at Wrigley Stadium, you know, watching the Chicago Cubs. They lived through you that day. Yes, they did vicariously. (laughs) My neighbors play uh, a ton of baseball. And and when my neighbors play a ton of baseball, they they always comment on how it's such a good game for developing character because even the best players in baseball virtually all have a losing record when they go up to bat. Like you you lose or you miss, you know, nine times out of ten or whatever it is. I'm I'm not a huge baseball person. I kind of think it's like watching grass grow. And I, I grew up in Arizona, so it was watching dead grass grow. <laughs> and and so, but it was a really interesting perspective of thinking in the people who spend a ton of time learning to play baseball and getting good at it, it is a study in failure because you go up and you miss and you have to do it again and again and again. And the last time that you went up, you may have missed for eight times in a row. And if you hit the grand slam, which I understand is something really important in baseball and not just a play of tennis. <laughs> um, it, you know, it can totally change things. And then you can spend the next five times you go up to bat, missing, missing, missing all over again. And it's just, it's a fascinating way to think about it, of going up and failing again and again and again and still doing it and still being considered to be among the best in your field, despite failing far more than you do good. Okay, so we're done with we're done with the podcast now. We've we've wrapped it all up. We've had an analysis of it. <laughs> yeah, Carrie, you'll you'll make you make the Hall of Fame if you hit the ball thirty percent of the time when you oh, wow. when you go up to bat. So batting three hundred 
will probably get you into the Hall of Fame. I like fertility. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. That's a good transition. (laughs) It's crazy. All right. So what is our question of the day, Carrie? So question of the day is, what are some of the common ways to manage anxiety around this process um, of fertility treatment? And the, the questioner says, I have already told my husband that my doctor said a daily massage is required. <laughs> and, and full disclosure, when I talk to my patients, uh, certainly after retrieval and transfer, I say, you know, I will write whatever whatever note you need that, you know, you get a pass from dishes, laundry, chores around the house, like, you know, just take a break for a little while. But how do you guys tell your patients to manage anxiety and the stress associated with everything that we do? Well, I I typically do tell them to do mindfulness. That's something that's helped me with stress and anxiety too. I think, you know, we're in very stressful fields. Truth be told, we're all, I mean, I think you'd be lying if you didn't say at some point in medicine as a physician, you're stressed and anxious. And so I think it's, I think it's really important to kind of live in the moment and not worry about what's in the future or what's in the past or, you know, because I think that really adds a whole layer. And I think with our patients, particularly, you know, a lot of times when they're talking to us, they're not so worried about what's going on at the moment. You know, they're not being, they're not being chased by the bear, you know, out, outside and about to be eaten by the bear, but they're really worried about what's going to happen at the end of this month. Am I going to be pregnant? What happens if I don't get pregnant with these three treatments of oral medicine insemination? And so they're thinking really far in advance. And I think that that's really what drives a lot of anxiety. And I think just admitting to yourself, you're anxious about it and accepting it and kind of saying, okay, I'm anxious. I'm going to spend a little time worrying about it. And then I'm going to move on and do something for the rest of the day and put that, you know, on a shelf somewhere. Kind of, kind of along that same line, one thing that I do tell my patients is that realize that you're not the only person worried about what's happening. I, I always tell them I'm actually a professional worrier, <laughs> that I am worrying on your behalf so you don't have to. And, and so what, what I'm essentially saying is you have a whole team of people who what we do is focus on helping you get to where you want to be. And that you're not alone and that, you know, I I know fertility tends to be a lot of very isolating um, at times and that even if you don't feel comfortable sharing those things with maybe, you know, somebody else kind of in your normal life that we are here and we really are sitting here focusing and worrying and making sure that all those I's are dotted and T's are crossed and, and, and that, you have a whole team of people who are rooting for you and working to to make things go go in a positive fashion. Yeah, I agree. I also try to because um, I'm always seeing the males, but it's more explaining to a couple that this it, this is normal. A lot of people are going through this. You're not alone. There's a process. You don't shouldn't expect to get pregnant after the first IUI. You know, it just just kind of putting it into context of of it takes some time. And I think that helps some. Um, And then on the male front, it's often the anxiety of performance. And so we often have conversations about, all right, well, if you have intercourse every other day, whenever you want is probably reasonable. And, you know, and that sometimes we're going to have some erectile dysfunction and maybe we'll temporarily use some 
you know, daily Tadalafil uh, or something like that to help, you know, things that just take the pressure. And I'm looking at it from the male perspective when I'm talking to these patients, but those are things that we'll work on. That's great because when, when the guys come and see us, the way that they kind of focus their anxiety, I think is, um, I, this is a trend. It's not all guys, but you know, the ladies are worried about all those details of we need to be doing this and this and this. And the guys focus on the financial aspect because that's something that they feel that they can control. And like understanding that as a physician has helped me understand. It's like when they start focusing on that, I'm like, okay, this is, this is how they are able to kind of conceptualize and, and deal with their anxiety because it's something that they think that they can, it's tangible. And, and so um, helping them work through those things, just like you helping them work through kind of the performance things, it, it's, we're, we're going to be there. It's, it's okay. It, it's, you know, we're, we're going to make that process. Yeah. One step at a time. Don't go borrowing trouble. Um, focus on the things that make you feel better. Oftentimes working with other other professionals, whether it's Eastern medicine with, you know, the acupuncturists, they, um, I know there's one in town that I work with a lot who's really helpful. Um, working with the therapist, the psychologist, they're really helpful. Recommending that they work with a religious figure that they trust, um, touching base regularly with another friend, going to yoga, mindfulness classes, all of those things, something where they are consciously paying attention to themselves and and focusing on the things that they truly can control and the things that they can't, because there's a lot of this that none of us can control. And acknowledging that is half the battle because so many people want to control things that that all of us as a group just cannot. And and I agree with Susan. Like we are we are professional warriors. I wake up at usually between two and four a.m. thinking about my patients. Going, okay, is everybody okay? Do I need to think about anything? What do I think about this patient that I was seeing earlier today or last week? And what if I do this, this, then this, and this? And and sometimes patients will get emails from me at three a.m. proposing, hey, why don't we try this? Um, my staff always laugh at me because I do that while I'm driving. So I do a lot of driving between New Braunfels and San Antonio. So I have a good 35 to 45 minutes anytime I have an egg retrieval or embryo transfer or anything one way. And they can always tell when I don't have like an audio book on or the radio on because I'll like start calling them. I'm like, Hey, what about so-and-so? Hey, what about so-and-so? What are we doing for this? What don't we do? You know, it's, it's when those ideas kind of pop in and, and, um, but we really, we really do sit there and worry about you guys. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we are going to dive into our subject today. So, um, John, you're going to talk to us a little bit about DNA fragmentation. What is it? And you're going to answer some of our, our questions because, you know, honestly, until a year ago, I did not even have like DNA fragmentation and sperm like on my radar and literally in 12 months it is like way more at the forefront of anything I'm paying attention to so uh, I'm I'm very very excited about this. <laughs> yeah, I had, I remember us having lunch as a group about about a year ago talking about it and all of us saying, "Well, I, I don't really know what should we be doing." Um okay, so DNA fragmentation. So sperm count or semen analyses are extremely limited in what they can do. They look at a count, a volume, a um, motility, and a morphology. And none of those have actually really been correlated very well with fertility outcomes. They just It's just not a very good test. And so it doesn't really measure in a 
in a satisfying way how well that sperm is actually going to fertilize. And so they've looked at these newer tests to do that. And one of them is they started looking at the breakage of the DNA within the sperm. Okay. So what what exactly is DNA? So DNA is basically the message that we carry from the male that meets with the um, message that comes from the female. It's the genes from the male, the genes from the female, they join together. And then you have your, uh, your uh, new child that carries the, the messages from both. Uh, so it's the male part of the contribution. And so the sperm have half the message and then the egg has the other half of the message and you put them back together and you get the full message. And so the sperm are carrying that within the head of the sperm. Okay. And so as the sperm uh, travels, it has to travel from the testicle through the epididymis, the vas, the urethra, the outside world. It's got to go to the vagina. It's got to get into the uterus. It's a traumatic journey for these little guys. And um, it will break the DNA within the sperm. Now, we make an immense amount of sperm. We make 80 to 100 million sperm on an average normal guy. So that's that's a whole bunch. And so we can break a whole bunch. And they've shown that a normal male will have about 20% of the sperm broken uh, when it comes out in the ejaculate. And 20% or less is normal. But when it gets higher, they started to wonder, well, what kind of impact did that have? So uh, we tend to use 30% is our cutoff as, uh, as um, abnormal. And they looked at, well, what kind of impact does that have? And there are a number of studies out there. We just did Journal Club about a month ago over, over with the UT group. And uh, I was reviewing that with them. There's a really good article out of Andrology from September 2019. And what they found is if you have a higher DNA fragmentation uh, index, you had a higher miscarriage rate, you had a poor implantation rate, a poor blastocyst quality rate, and by, not just by a little bit. It was it was by a by a large margin, and so it starts to give you this idea that the DNA fragmentation is probably something pretty significant in all of this. So I have some questions. So mm-hmm. you 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 mentioned um, th- so when I order a DNA fragmentation test, first of all, are there multiple companies who are doing this, or is it mainly the company that I use? I, I really have no idea if there's multiple companies who are testing DNA fragmentation. Well, what's even worse than that, they're not just multiple companies. There are um, at least four different assays that can be done for it. There's the, I wrote them down here, the sperm chromatin dispersion assay, the, the, the sperm chromatin structure assay, which is the one that, that you and I use called the SCISA, okay. the tunnel assay, and the comet assay. And they all look at different ways to try to figure out is there broken DNA or not? And it, at this point, we're not really sure which test is going to be the most useful. They just use different means to try to um, figure out is that sperm, is that DNA broken? So what do you do once you find out that you have, let's say, 30% fragmented sperm? What do you do about it? Because it's not, uh, I'm just, and I'm guessing, but just I'm guessing our our listeners are thinking kind of the same thing. It's not as though it's breaking because you have a a, a masturbation technique that's too rough or a sex technique that's too <laughs> rough. It's not it's not like a physical breaking in that. It's because of an inherent abnormality in in how the sperm are coming together, how they're made. And and when you were talking earlier about 80 million sperm being made, that's 80 million per ejaculate. So that's a ton of sperm all the time. What do you do to improve that 
fragmentation. I mean, is that an inherent abnormality that's always going to be there? Like, do you just use that information to tell the couple, hold on to your, you know, hold on to your hats. This is going to be a long ride. Don't get your expectations up. We're going to, um, you know, change your diet and hope for the best or take these medications. Like, what do you do? Yeah. How do you fix it is really the big question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's obviously, what do we do with this? It doesn't help to have a test without being able to have some means to intervene on it. And so first off, um, who would you check it on? So what we generally in the male fertility world will generally check it on patients who have unexplained infertility, recurrent miscarriages, or have had recurrent uh, assisted reproduction, usually IVF, ICSI type of failures. So I'd like to just kind of make a statement about what I've been doing and also about a question I have. So I'm, I'm really enthralled about the recurrent pregnancy loss because I haven't been really focusing on that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as OB-GYNs, DNA fragmentation is like in nothing (laughs) that says check DNA fragmentation for recurrent pregnancy loss. So I'm really, I'd like to kind of get more of your perspective, but um, over this last year, like you said, we, we met, we had a conversation about DNA fragmentation. And I know at our clinic, there had been some people who did like DNA fragmentation tests on everybody and they decided, yeah, that's probably not very worthwhile. And so what I've tended to do over this last year is I, I am doing DNA fragmentation tests on people who are going to IVF because I've had a handful of people who I hadn't done it, had poor outcomes, and then came back and did a DNA fragmentation test. And it's like, oh yes, we've got lots of fragmentation. And then acted upon that and we've had better outcomes. But I've also been doing a DNA fragmentation test on most of my guys over 40. Um, you know, we have some gentlemen in our clinics who are in their 50s and 60s. They tend to, in, in my experience, and I don't know if, John, you can comment on data about age and DNA fragmentation. And then my guys who have other, what we would call comorbidities or other health problems, high blood pressure, diabetes, they smoke, they drink too much. Those are kind of the big ones that I that I see in my clinic. I, any thoughts on those things as well? So um, I'll try to remember all of them. Interesting. So <laughs> Susan, you wrote um, a lot of those off. I'm really impressed by that. <laughs> so I, I think I think first off, you do, it's not a shotgun. You don't pick it for everybody, and 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 a lot of it gets down to you know trying to figure out the best way that patients spend their dollars. And I don't think getting a DNA fragmentation on all the couples showing up makes much sense. And I think that's why a lot of the big academic experts in the male fertility world have talked about those three scenarios where we would do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen any studies on age and DNA fragmentation. It may be out there. I haven't come across it. There certainly is suggestion that uh, other things will uh, increase your risk of DNA fragmentation. When we we were talking about things to correct, um, smoking, obesity, uh, those are those are all parameters that you want to look at. And you want to try to eliminate those. And there's some evidence that maybe that will make an impact on the DNA fragmentation. Um, there was some enthusiasm for trying to get antioxidants in your diet or getting a diet that has more of an antioxidant base. So we're eating more plants. We're not having a lot of processed foods. Um, but then you had this MOXIE trial uh, that came out that basically threw the whole concept of, the, of um, supplementation 
uh, into disarray. Uh, I think that came out, when was it? Um, so they essentially say supplementation doesn't help? So what they did is they put groups on antioxidants, one group not on, on it, one group on it, one not on it, and they found no statistically significant difference after three months of being on it on sperm concentration, motility, shape, and DNA quality. And uh, for a long time, I haven't been putting patients on, on antioxidants and I just tell them, I was like, listen, if you, you can go on it, just don't spend a lot of money doing it. Because for every study that showed it made a slight difference, there's another one that showed it didn't make much of a difference. And then you have this big moxie trial that you hear people starting to quote more and more. And I'm, I don't know, I think it, I think it gives even more of a, of a nail in the, in the antioxidant issue. So that's, that's, I don't do a lot of DNA fragmentation as I'm sitting here listening to you talk. That's kind of my thinking behind it is, you know, if you're trying to look at healthcare dollars and you've got a test and it may tell you something, but you can't do anything to change it, why would you do the test? So that's why I'm a little kind of on the fence about whether or not to even do DNA fragmentation. First of all, changing lifestyle factors, in my opinion, if you're looking at three months of lifestyle factors, it takes 72 days to make a new sperm. Mm -hmm. So like you make that lifestyle change and you have one batch of fresh sperm yeah. <laughs> in three so, months. But, but what you're saying is, so you do believe, or there's studies that show that, you know, losing weight and, um, and stopping smoking makes a big difference in your opinion. I don't know if the term would be a big difference, but it uh, there's been a few papers that were suggesting smaller studies showed that. So I and and I think that that just makes sense. You have higher oxidants present when you are uh, obese. You have this chronic inflammatory process going on. Same thing with smoking, and that's where you would hope that the oral antioxidants would make a difference. And it, it, um, I still go natural with that, and I get your oral ox antioxidants by eat more plants, get more fresh fruits and fresh vegetables, don't mm -hmm. eat the processed food, those type of things. But there's still things you can do, even if we may not be able to cure them of all their risk factors. Right, John? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, where, that's where we're coming to is, is, is what, it, what do you do if, it, if you, doing all these risk factors, you try to correct them, they don't make a difference. And I find generally, uh, you're probably going to have to intervene and the intervention can be invasive. So that's why you want to pick the right it patient. Can be invasive. <laughs> it can be invasive. So that's why you pick the right patient for this because what works? Well, so one of them, um, they've shown that if you have varicocele and you repair varicocele, uh, it drops the DFI. There was one study by Chiba that showed it dropped it from 28 to 22%. There were other studies that showed a little bit better, but it makes somewhat of a difference. So if a guy comes in, he's got large grade three varicoceles and high DNA fragmentation, I will probably try that first, but I, you're also taking into account how old is he, how old is the wife, how much time do they have to get this varicocele repaired. Find out six months later, did it make a difference? Now are they pregnant? You know, it, so it, it all kind of depends. So the young couple, I think it's totally reasonable. The older couple, you start saying, okay, well, I'm not sure we have time to repair the varicocele and go down that path, but that is something that could be done. So, um, so, so what has been the tried and true and the one that every, all the male fertility experts have talked about? So, uh, there have been a few of these studies, but Garrido and fertility and sterility showed that if you take, uh, the sperm, uh, from the testicle, you markedly reduce the DNA fragmentation than the sperm that's ejaculated. Okay. And what Garrido showed is that if you took the sperm from the testicle, uh, the DNA fragmentation was 
9% in the testicle versus 33% in the ejaculated. And then they went on and they showed that the pregnant clinical pregnancy rate was 50% versus 29%. The miscarriage rate was 9% as opposed to 29%. And the live birth rate was 46% versus 25%. So John, you're talking about taking sperm from a testicle. Okay, yeah. right now our <laughs> ladies are being like, hmm, and the guys are like, hmm. <laughs> Let me sign my husband up for that. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you give us a little more information about what that actually means? Sure, absolutely. So what we're talking about is a what we call a testia, a testicular sperm extraction. And it, it sounds awful. Um, but all of these sound awful to males when you're talking about it. And it actually is, it's, it's not that big of a procedure to go through. You're generally sedated. Uh, we inject some numbing medication. We make a little tiny incision over the skin, little tiny incision over the testicle and say, take some of the tubules directly from the testicle. And we give this to our, uh, embryologist and then they use it fresh that day for the IVF. Okay. We don't like to do it frozen because my thought is, okay, if we freeze it, well, now you're putting the sperm through a whole new stress. And if they're already predisposed to DNA fragmentation, we probably shouldn't do that. We probably should use it fresh that day. Do you find that as a challenge, though, to do it on the same day? I don't know that we could pull that off, do the egg retrieval and the sperm aspiration on the same day. But that's what you guys do? And it's not an aspiration. I do a, a fresh incision. The aspiration, I, 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 I guess you could do that. But I like to get as little trauma to the uh, little guys that I'm, at, that I'm pulling up. And I prefer not to aspirate them. Um, we've, we've figured out how to do it. We have, um, uh, myself and another partner in my group, uh, do, uh, male fertility work. And as, uh, Dr. Hudson can attest, we generally, you guys will let us know a day or two before when the cycle is supposed, is probably going to take place. And then the day before we get noticed, okay, you need to do it. And so I'll just generally do it at like 6.30 or 7 before clinic starts. And we, we can, it doesn't take very long. It's 20, 30 minutes to do. And then I can get back to my day. They can, uh, the, the male is there to help the female with her cycle. He's had some sedation, so they're going to need a driver to take them home. But you can generally do it. The tricky ones are holidays and Saturdays and Sundays, but <laughs> that's part of the job. Very good. Very good. So are there other options available if somebody's like, hmm, I don't really like that idea? Sure. Uh, yeah. So this is what we talked about about a year ago. Is this? There's this concept called microfluidics. And microfluidics are... Uh, at least one paper where I read where they were describing one of the devices, but basically the, the one that I heard described is pretty cool the way they described. They take a laser printer and they create, or they a laser 3D printer, and they create these devices that create these micro channels that the sperm has to travel through. So you put the sperm on one end, they travel through these little micro channels, and they get to the to the other end. And it's far more complex than my non-engineering mind can understand. But there's like cross flows that will take place to help sort out. But basically, the sperm you get at the end has a markedly improved motility. And they've shown that that sperm has a markedly decreased DNA fragmentation. Okay. So the sperm that are getting at the end, the embryologist can pick for the best ones for ICSI, kind of the best of the best, theoretically. Theoretically. Okay. And go ahead. This would be used for IVF, not IUI. So there's not enough sperm to actually inseminate a patient in the office with it, though, right? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. What, Susan, what have you found? 
So yes, you can use it for IUI. Now, realistically, um, in our experience, you have to have about 40 million sperm um, before IUI processing to have enough to make it through the device and to have enough to actually give you a good chance at insemination. So it depends on the count, in other words. It depends on your count. So if you have a guy who has a great count, but he's got a lot of fragmentation, I've had some good success with IUI. Now, if you have somebody who has some degree of male factor from their semen analysis, so they don't have as many swimmers as you really want to, just using the device may knock them down to a level where they may still have to do IVF, Mm -hmm. but you can use that sperm for IVF instead of having to necessarily do an extraction. So so that, that all sounds really good. And it sounds like, hey, this is great. We don't have to do a biopsy. The problem is there isn't a study showing microfluidic acquired sperm versus testicular sperm for ICSI cycles. And when I called a couple of the big institutions across the country, I called up to Northwestern and then called the Baylor College of Medicine, they still use testicular derived sperm. And when I said, are you aware of those studies? I said, no, why don't you go do one? I was going to say, this would be a great study for ovation. We should do this. (laughs) It is. It's a a very good study. Now, now, so here here is the issue. Okay. And and I've I've thought about this for a long time since Susan and I talked about it about a year ago. And I've read read a, a number of articles and trying to get my grasp on it. So when you're, when you're doing these, these, microfluidic channels, you're basically separating out the non-modal sperm from the modal sperm. So you have modal sperm and those sperm are alive as opposed to the ones you separated out, which are dead, which makes sense. So the dead sperm, you would expect them to have an increased DNA fragmentation and the live sperm at the end, you would expect them to have less. And this, um, there was a study that showed that the DNA fragmentation rate dropped down to 1%. With a with one of these microfluidic channels, so it sounds amazing. Now, my problem with it is that um, if you if you do ICSI, most of the time you're already selecting a modal sperm, right? So you're already trying to pick the best modal one that you have on the table, and and so most of the time we're already kind of doing the filter that the microfluidics are doing. And then if you look at the ICSI cycles uh, that Iocanelli showed in one of their studies, they found that the ICSI success rates were markedly worse with the ejaculated sperm compared to the testicular-derived sperm. And you would assume they were picking the modal sperm when they did the ejaculated sperm. But then you're assuming the device is doing nothing. I mean, if I'm an embryologist, which I'm not, and I'm trying to pick out a best looking sperm, which we all know is actually relatively, you know, most sperm are actually abnormally looking. Okay. But if I know that 30% of the ones that I'm picking it are, are going to have high amounts of DNA fragmentation versus picking out of a supply that maybe has only 10%, I'm not even talking about the one that's 1%, you know, the odds of me picking one that has less fragmentation seems to be in my favor. Yeah, but the problem is that you are, you're cognitively picking the modal sperm. So you may already be doing what the microfluidic channel is doing by selecting out the modal sperm, the live sperm that therefore would have less DNA fragmentation. 
But that's assuming your microfluidics is doing nothing more than like a swim up prep. That's that's the big question. And that's where the that's where the paper needs to come out that shows that. So our lab did a study to see whether or not we wanted to use this chamber or not. And we weren't comparing it to any testy sperm. We were just comparing to standard ICSI where you take a you know garden variety prep sample and you were looking at a uh, that sample compared to one of these microfluidic channels. And when we looked at the final data, the channels didn't do anything. It, it, the, data, the data was actually worse, which we were all surprised at because I was pushing hard on all of my patients of, hey, let's, get, let's use this device on absolutely every patient who goes through there. And, and the results were not that good. And so... So it's really interesting to hear you you talk about the potential differences between those and testicular sperm because that it, it scares me and 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 there's so what so what does that mean if we're taking it from the testicle well when you take the sperm from the testicle they aren't moving at all at that point so you're not even selecting modal versus immodal most of the time I mean sometimes they're moving but very very rarely so most of the time you're selecting immodal sperm that came from this ugly looking testicular specimen. And they're having much better fertility rates than selecting the modal sperm at the end of ICSI. So this is what I think is going on. And, and this is why we need papers for it. But I think that, that there's something intrinsically abnormal in those men who have increased DNA fragmentation in their sperm before they even start the journey that they are predisposed to damage and damage that we're not even able to measure with this less blunt but, net, but blunt tool of looking for DNA fragmentation. I think we, I think there's, there's, um, we, the sperm that are in the testicle are predisposed to damage when they make the journey. And if we take the sperm from the testicle, we haven't given them time to become damaged. And a lot of people believe, you know, a lot of people believe that the DNA fragmentation comes because the DNA of the sperm is not tightly packed within the head of the sperm and it's loosely packed. And then that leaves it open to oxidants damaging the sperm as it travels through. And so maybe there's a packing problem or something in the testicle that by taking it from the testicle, you are putting these little swimmers through their least amount of stress. I, I don't know. So interesting. It, it, you know, it's one of those things that we just still have so much to learn. You're, you're exactly right. I think that's why each of the, the folks that I really look up to that I called about this, was talking to about it, they said, we need the study. We don't know. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. New adventures. It's, it's so neat to like talk about us still discovering new ways to, to figure out what's going on with our couples because there's, there's just so many... You know, I always say that if we wrote a book about everything we know about infertility and then a second book about, you know, all the things we can actually test, that second book is only about half as thick. That there's just yeah, not even <laughs> so many things still on the horizon. It's a miracle we're all here. There's so many things that can go wrong in reproduction. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Would love to have you back. And thank you so much for having me. This was fun. To our audience, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensored to schedule an appointment or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered in the podcast anonymously. Don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll see you all soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.